two thoughts came to me uh, as we were worshiping there. The, the first, I don't, I don't know if you guys can hear it. Everybody be real quiet for just a second. You hear that? Yeah. So Jesus in Luke chapter 19 is talking, and, and the Pharisees criticize him uh, because his disciples are speaking up. And he says, if they don't speak up, then the rocks will cry out. Uh, and we're having this beautiful time of worship, and I don't know why, but for some reason, I just kept hearing the birds in the background singing with us, like joining along in the worship. I don't know. It's kind of cool. I, thanks, guys, for leading us in that. The second thing that I noticed is Team Cold isn't as confident if they're underneath here. It's freezing underneath here. Team Cold has changed teams uh, if you're not in the sun this morning. Uh, so I'm sticking with Team Hot. Uh, uh, hey, one quick uh, announcement. Uh, one of the things I promised you guys when I became your pastor was that I would always be honest about where we are financially and that I would share kind of where we stand occasionally with our finances and that I would never shame and guilt you. I wouldn't bring a child up here and say like, hey, look at this poor child. I need your money so that this kid can like, we're not going to do those kinds of things, but we are going to be honest about where we are over and over again and just kind of share. And so as you go into the summer, it's always a challenging time for churches because over the summer, everybody's vacationing, everybody's going off and everybody's gone for a few weeks and consistent giving goes down a little bit. And we're incredibly grateful for all the sacrifices that this church has given. Uh, the past year has been this beautiful sign of just God's abundance and his presence and his taking care of us. And we know that everybody's pitched in. We were able to build this amazing park, which is absolutely incredible. And God's just been so good to bless our finances. But over the last six weeks, our giving has dropped dramatically, uh, dramatically. Uh, and so I just want to really encourage everybody, if this is your church home, uh, we need your tithes. It's helpful for us. Uh, and it doesn't just go to like, let's get a new table. Uh, we're, we're, we're funding a whole bunch of missionaries all around the world, particularly in the Muslim world. We're giving to people in the community in benevolence ways and community outreach ways. Uh, we're serving young people over and over again with our student and youth programs. There's a lot of amazing things that are happening because of your generosity. And so I just want to encourage everybody, if this is your church home, would you do me a favor before you get into the summer and start disappearing and we don't see you for six months or six weeks at a time, six months would be a, a little much. Maybe, maybe like every few weeks for a while. Uh, go online. You can actually use your QR code right there and set up some online giving so that we can have more consistent giving. Consistent giving is what we need right now. We have enough money. It's just not consistent at this time. And so if this is your church home, just want to encourage you to set up online giving. Uh, whatever that gift is that you can give, do that consistently. We good? All right, I'm done talking about that. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 3. We're in a series called Rebuild, and we're talking about what it looks like to rebuild our lives from the rubble of what's happened in the last year to year and a half. Uh, last week, we talked about planning and dreaming, that in every kind of dream that you have to have planners and you have to have dreamers. Uh, I was reading a book this week by a guy named James Clear. The book is called Atomic Habits. Anybody read it? Uh, it's a little self-helpy, right? Uh, but it's good. There's some really, really good stuff in there. And one of the things that he says at the very beginning of the book that caught my attention is, we never rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. And he talked about how every team's goal is to win a championship. Like every team wants to win. The problem is not that they don't have the goal. The problem is that they don't have the systems that get you to the goal. And so oftentimes as Christians, what we are is we're people with really good intentions and really bad practices. Are you with me? 
We all have good intent. We all want to love our neighbor. We all want to be generous. We all want to be kind. We all want to be like Christ. But the problem is we don't have systems or practices that actually get us to that place. And so Nehemiah meets with King Artaxerxes, who's not a good dude, right? Like just there's some movies out there that you can watch that you may want to watch, you may not want to watch, but he's not the, he's not the kindest guy in the world. He's not really a gentle soul. Uh, and, and he's the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. He meets with him. He says, listen, my people are in ruins. Could you send me back there to go help? He says, yes. And then Nehemiah gets really brave and says, could you fund the whole thing? Like, could you give me all the money to make this happen? And he says, yes. And so Nehemiah starts journeying back and takes that long trip back to Jerusalem. And as he's doing this, he doesn't just need a goal. It's not just because he says he wants to do it that it's going to happen. He actually needs practices to go along with his intention. He actually needs planning. He actually needs preparation. And so as we get to the end of Nehemiah chapter 2 and the beginning of Nehemiah chapter 3, it's kind of just a leadership curriculum of how we cast vision and invite people into what God is doing in our life. Because vision is always a response to a really specific need in the community. For us, our vision at Grace Marietta is to awaken each other to live kingdom dreams in a world that's fast asleep. Because we believe in this. We believe in what St. Ignatius said, that the glory of God is humanity fully alive. We actually believe that what God wants most from us is for us to most fully be who he created us to be. So in Ephesians, it talks about God created a good work. He prepared for it in advance. An occupation is the way it's translated. We call that a kingdom dream. He's given every single believer a kingdom dream, a kingdom occupation, a kingdom plan. And we believe the greatest gift that we can give to Cobb County is to train you and unleash you and send you out and equip you to live the dream that God's already placed in your heart. And so we want to excavate that dream from you. If you're like, I don't, I'm not sure what the dream is, we actually believe that dream's already in you, and we want to help pull it out. And then we want to help you discover it. We want to help you develop it, and we want to actually deploy you to live the kingdom dream that God has for you. We believe the greatest thing that we can do for the church is unleash its church, not have a great worship service here on Sundays. But we, are, we do have a lot of people here today. And if some of you want to bring your own chairs next week, I think we're out of chairs. I'm not kidding. So uh, if some of you want to bring some lawn chairs... Holtuses, thumbs up, well done with the blanket, uh, any of those kinds of things. You want to create your own picnic, uh, bring it. Uh, we would love to have that. But, but our solution to the problem in our community is we want to unleash God's people to go serve and meet, meet the needs. Because here's the, here's, the, here's the reality. I have a limited capacity in what I'm able to accomplish throughout the week. So uh, um, Ronald Heifus says the definition of leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can absorb. I love that. I love that. And I feel that every week because there's this limit. There's this limit in what I'm able to do and what I'm able to accomplish every single week. And so every single week, I know there are certain things I'm not going to be able to do. There's a to-do list that I'm not going to be able to get through. And so the only way that I get more done is we train and equip. We call it discipleship. We disciple others to go and do the same kinds of things. And so we train and we send and we disciple um, and the problem for us is at the end of that vision statement, in a world that's fast asleep. I don't know if there's any other statement that I've come across that sums up Cobb County more than fast asleep. We are all moving fast. 
Everybody's driving downtown for work, hustling back at night, getting back and exhausted and getting ready to recreate the same thing the next morning. We're all moving fast, but there's this something that's missing. We're pulling into our giant houses, pulling into the garage, and feeling like something is still not there. We live in a world that's fast asleep. We're spiritually asleep. We're asleep to what God is doing in our everyday life. We're asleep to the presence and the power of God and the anointing of God has that, that every moment is holy, that every minute is full of possibilities, that God is present and he's at work and he's good and he's moving all the time. And so we want to awaken you to the presence of God. Ephesians 4 says, awaken, O sleeper, rise from the dead and the love of Christ will shine upon you. We want to awaken you to that reality that God is always working and we want to talk about these kingdom dreams. So Nehemiah has a kingdom dream. And then what's interesting about Nehemiah is his kingdom dream is not his job, right? His job is he's a cupbearer to the king, which is a funny job, right? He's the guy that makes sure the king isn't drinking poison and makes sure the king has refills. Like that's kind of his job, but that's not his dream. And sometimes our job is not our dream. Sometimes the job is what we do so that we can live out the dream. Sometimes the job funds the dream, Sometimes the job becomes the way in which we get to doing the kingdom things that God has for us. And so when you think about Nehemiah's dream, one of the things that we do in our discovery labs is we have everybody come up with two words to describe their kingdom dream. It's really, really fun. And so you have to kind of take your dream, your, your vision, and narrow it down into two words. Mine is rediscovering imagination. That's what I think I've been put here on earth to do, to awaken dreams, to rediscover imagination. Douglas is communicating kingdom. Allie's is realizing vision. And so we all come up with these kind of two words to name what our kingdom dream is. Here's what I want you to do. We're going to be interactive. Is it all right that we talk to one another and look around for a second? Grab a group of like three or four, four or five, somebody that you didn't come with. Invite somebody you didn't come with into the group. And I want you to talk about if you had to name Nehemiah's dream in two words, what would it be? All right. If you had to name what Nehemiah's kingdom dream is in two words, what could it be? There's some low-hanging fruit here for this one also. You got one minute, only one minute. You can't do a lot of small talk. All right, you got 20 seconds, 20 seconds. It's not enough time, I know, but I got to preach a whole sermon. All right, who's got a good one? Who's got a good one? Right here. Unrealistic? I, I don't even know what that means. Let's move on. Inspiring faith? Restoring Israel, restoring hope. Ooh, we're getting somewhere. What else? Glorifying God, building faith. Anybody use the word rebuilding? Rebuilding. Real simple. Rebuilding walls could be a real simple one, right? That's 
That's literally what he did, right? There's a, there's a great way of naming these kinds of things. And what's fun is if you look at the whole trajectory of all of Scripture, you could do this with any narrative in all of Scripture. You could say, what's, what was their two-word task? What was the two things that, that God asked them, called them to and invited them to? And so we see Nehemiah stepping into this, but, but as he steps into his vision, as he shows up in Jerusalem, surprisingly, it doesn't happen as easy as he had planned. Because sometimes what happens is we make great plans in our head. I do this all the time, guys. The plans in my head are amazing. Every sermon I write is incredible until I actually deliver it, right? We've got great plans in our head. We've got great ideas and great thoughts. But when we actually get to the execution of those ideas, it gets difficult and it gets challenging. So open with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 9, he knows his vision. He knows what he's called to do. He's taken the journey back home to Jerusalem. He's been funded. He's found this amazing favor with God, but now he actually has to put into practice the plans that God has given him and the vision that he has. Nehemiah 2, verse 9, it says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letter. And now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but... But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servants heard this, there's always a Sanballat and a Tobiah, guys. I'm telling you right now, those Hornites are everywhere, especially in the church. They're all over the place. Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is really interesting how that's worded, isn't it? It didn't displease them that Nehemiah had come back. It didn't displease them that Nehemiah was rebuilding. It displeased them that he was seeking the welfare of the people of Israel. People in power never want the oppressed to rise up. People in power will always fight to not change the systems that actually hurt the people that they're oppressing. And so Sanballat and, and Tobiah are these people. Sanballat was the governor of Samaria between, around 408 BC. And at this time, he's probably elderly. So his sons are probably acting for him in all of these different ways. But he has a vested interest in Israel staying re- unbuilt. Right? He doesn't want the walls. He doesn't want the marketplace. He doesn't want them to be a, a flourishing center because he's benefiting from their oppression. Does that make sense? As long as they're not this thriving city, he's going to do well for himself. Tobiah is probably the same Tobiah or or probably a descendant of the same Tobiah that's mentioned in Ezra chapter 2. This guy was excluded and kicked out of the Jewish community because he couldn't prove his Jewish lineage. And so he has this ongoing animosity and frustration towards God's people. And so there's two people that have a bone to pick. There's two people that have an agenda that's not God's agenda. And the agenda is not a holy agenda. It's not a good agenda. One wants revenge and the other wants power. And they will do whatever they can to protect those two things. And here's what I've realized. I've I've been a pastor for a really long time. And here's what I've realized in the church. I have a mentor that told me this. He said, 90% of the people in your church are amazing and wonderful. 10% are a little frustrating. And 1% of that 10% are downright nasty. And if you're not careful, what will happen is you'll spend 90% of your time on the 10% instead of investing your time in the 90%. 
And the one thing I've realized over and over again from lots of years of pastoring is this. 90% of the criticism that comes, comes from people who are not helping in any way. 90% of the criticism comes from people who are not serving in any area, who are not volunteering in any area, who are not giving any finances in any area, but who love to sit on the sidelines and criticize what's actually happening. Rarely are we ever criticized by people who are actually doing more than us. Have you noticed that? It rarely happens that way. Uh, and, and it's such a big deal that Jesus even talks about this. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16, he says, listen, somebody's always going to be displeased with your kingdom dream. Somebody's always going to be frustrated when you're pursuing the right thing. But Jesus says to his disciples, listen, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me and rejects the one who sent me. And so we have to understand that when people are rejecting our dream, when they're rejecting our vision, when they're complaining, when they're arguing, when they're frustrating, all of those things are happening. They're actually, their problem is with God and not us. We're fighting against powers and principalities, not against people. Uh, I went last night to the Atlanta United game. Anybody? It was really fun. It was fun to be at a live sporting event uh, in the world again. Uh, it was fun to, to be in a stadium. It was fun. They won. Uh, and and here's, my, here's my truth telling. I love Atlanta United. They're my Atlanta adopted team. I'm from Ohio, and so all my other teams are Ohio teams. God bless me. I'm a Bengals fan. Uh, I'm a long-suffering fan. Like, we've never won anything ever. We're the worst franchise in the history of every sport, right? Uh, but I... I I'm, I'm, I'm the, and so I decided I was going to adopt one team from Atlanta, and that's Atlanta United. And, and admittedly, I don't know a lot about soccer. I think I miss about 70% of what happens on the field while it's, while it's happening, right? It took me about three years to stop calling it a court, right? It's a field. <laughs> it's a pitch if you're going to get technical, right? I, I, it took me a long time to figure out all these. I don't know much of what's going on, but here's what I love to do with my teams. I love to complain. Are you with me? So our, Atlanta United, if you, how, many, how many are real fans of Atlanta United? We won a championship in 2018. And then we promptly sold our whole team. Every player that contributed, we're like, nah, you're going to go. You're going to go. You're going to go. We hired a coach that had no idea what he was doing and should have never been hired. Then we fired him, right? And we're, we're, we're rebuilding, right? We brought in some good players again. But here's what I love to do. I love to sit on the sidelines and complain and argue. I love to post on Instagram complaints about Atlanta United. You know what they call that person? A fair weather fan. A fair weather fan. I, I am with you when we're winning. But the moment things start to fall apart, they are going to feel my wrath on an Instagram comment on one of their posts. And I think it's working, guys. Like I, I've made about four strategic comments over the past two years, and I think it's like, I think it's lit a fire under them, and I think we're about to have a big season. But, but here's the thing. It's really easy for us to be fair-weather fans with the church, isn't it? Like, I can't tell you how many times people come and say, Pastor, we love this church. We love what's happening here. Until the program's on Wednesday night and they want it to be on Thursday night. Until the kids' retreat costs 10 more dollars than they want to spend on it. Until the, somebody sits in their assigned seat 
or until the vision actually affects them in a hard way or until the pastor starts a sermon about, by talking about giving or, or when you speak too much about racism or when you require masks or when you start meeting outdoors or when you start meeting indoors and the list goes on and on and on. But the problem is it's really easy to be a fair weather fan of your church. There's actually a, a term for this, which is called church hopping, and I've never lived in a place where it's more prevalent than Marietta, Georgia. We love to bounce from church to church, and as soon as the pastor says something I don't like with, uh, I'm just going somewhere else. As soon as something happens that I'm frustrated with, I'm out, and I'm going somewhere else. It's easy to sit on the side and criticize when you're not doing anything to solve the problem. And so I think there's a really beautiful message here in the book of Nehemiah about we actually jump in and we contribute. And listen, there are things that need to be critiqued in the church, right? There's things that need to be reformed in the church. And I know that some of you grew up in a background where you were really hurt by the church or something happened in your church family that wasn't okay. And, and we're constantly in this process of reforming and critiquing and making the church better and deconstructing and rebuilding. But here's what I've said over and over again, and I believe it's true, and it's why I give my life to what I do. I, I believe that what the church is intended to be is beautiful. The church as God intended is beautiful. We just got to figure out how to get there. We just got to fight through all of those things. My friend Mike Cosper said this this week. He said, critique of the church is absolutely necessary. And it's something I've done consistently, particularly in the last five years. But cheap dunking, blanket criticism, and spewing the same level of hate and vitriol you're trying to confront exposes the fact that people have traded one ideology for another. I know some folks who've deconstructed and done it thoughtfully and without bitterness, but I also see there's an entire cottage industry rising of celebrities who make evangelical hating a brand, and lots of the church is joining in with them. I think there's a real difference between critiquing something you love because you want it to be better and piling on. And I think a lot of people right now are piling on the church. Young people, I love you, but there's a generation that's piling on on the church right now. And it's only going to get worse, my prediction is, in the next decade. It's only going to get worse. And so there's a difference between speaking out for something you love, calling something you love to be better, and speaking as an insider who wants to change it than just throwing rocks at a glass house over and over and over again. Sanballat and Tobiah are throwing rocks at a glass house over and over and over again, while Nehemiah is the one who's actually paying the price. And I want us all to be careful that we're not throwing stones at people who are paying the price that we're unwilling to pay ourselves. Didn't get a lot of amens on that one. <laughs> right? It's really easy for us to criticize others who are paying prices that we're unwilling to pay ourselves. And we need to figure out how do we rebuild and how do we reform. Others will choose to mock and stop your progress. There will always be someone on the sidelines who's complaining about your kingdom call or your kingdom vision or why are you at church on Sunday? Why are you involved in, the, in this program? Why are you always over there? What are you doing? Why is this happening? All of those things. And we have to figure out how we drown out the critics and lean in towards what God has called us to. The second thing that happens when we put our king, kingdom dreams in practice is when we step into our kingdom dreams, we need to plan accordingly, assess carefully, and wait patiently. 
It's funny when I wrote that because I'm bad at all of those things. I, I have eight ideas before I have breakfast in the morning. I get, like, I just, I, I get so excited about things. And Nehemiah is so brilliant because what he does, this is what I'm learning because I'm really, really bad at it. Because here's what happens. I get an idea and then I just start telling everybody about it. And then there's these really annoying people that we talked about last week called planners who start asking me questions like, how are we going to, we call them here the board, right? They're, they're like, they're like, how are we going to pay for that? What are we going to do? How do we get there? What do we do? Like, how, the, and, and so I've got to actually plan. I've got to actually think through what I'm doing. I can't just throw out a bunch of ideas. And this is brilliant what Nehemiah does. Look at verse 11. It says, Nehemiah, so I went to Jerusalem and I was there for three days. So Nehemiah is causing a stir by showing up. Like you don't show up with the army of King's Artaxerxes and show up into this town that's kind of this podunk town in the middle of nowhere now without drawing attention. And for three days, he waits. And then after three days, in verse 12, it says, I arose at night and I went with a few men and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except the one that I rode. So he didn't have any dogs or cats or I, I don't know why that's significant. I went out by the valley gate to the dragon spring and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates had been destroyed with fire. I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for animals or for me to pass. Then I went up in the night to the valley and inspected the walls, and I turned back and entered the valley gate, so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were at work. Here's what he did. He planned accordingly. He assessed what needed to be done. We talked about it last week. What he did was he counted the cost. He counted the cost of what actually needed to happen. Uh, and, and, and after he assessed everything, after he waited patiently, after he saw what needed to be done, how the work was going to be managed, all the details in verse 7, it says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. You see how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. That word in, in other, in other uh, versions, it says, so that we may no longer be a reproach. Uh, the word is, is, is kind of shame, so that we may no longer be ashamed. They're, the Israelites are proud people. They're people who actually believe they're God's chosen people, chosen for a really specific task. But that's all been shattered when, when, when Jerusalem was destroyed and they were taken into exile into Babylon. And so they've now become this people who are ashamed. They're ashamed of their past. They're ashamed of how they got there. They're ashamed of the fact that the dream that they once had was destroyed, that the temple that they believed was the dwelling place of God has been knocked down, that all of these things that once were beautiful are gone. And so here's where he says, we're no longer going to be ashamed. We're no longer going to be a reproach. We're no longer going to be in derision. We're actually going to rebuild and we're going to do something about it. Because here's where God's people had been to that point. They had moved back, right? All of these people had come back from Babylon, but they hadn't been activated for some reason. Think about this. Like, why hadn't anybody else started this work? 
Like they're all in this town and the town's all falling apart and there's no walls and there's actually a place called a dung gate, which no town should have that, right? Like there's, there's, it's just a nasty place and everything's broken apart. They're not protected. Like walls were so significant in the ancient world. There's no one to protect them. It's not a safe haven. It's not a safe place to live. It's not a safe place to be. But nobody else had stepped into this. And so Nehemiah knows that the greatest task he has is to motivate and activate the actual people that are on the ground. And he starts by naming the problem. I don't want you to be ashamed anymore. I want you to be proud of your home. I want you to be proud of the place that you live. I want you to be proud of all of these things. And I told them the hand of my God had been upon me for good. Listen, here's the vision. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're headed. Here's the problem. And here's the way God is already working before the vision has even started. Here's how it's happened. He says, he says, I told them how I had spoken to the king, and I told him all the good things that the word the, kings had, the king had spoken to me, and I said, let us rise up and let us rebuild. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. It's a beautiful lesson in casting vision, isn't it? He names the problem. He names how God is already at work, and he calls people to action. If you want to call others into your kingdom dream, this is how you do it. You name the problem. You name the struggle that's actually happening within the problem. You name how God is already at work and you call people to action. Good leaders name what is, but they give you a vision of what could be, don't they? They name what is, but they give you a vision of what could be. I remember when I first got here and I saw the park that we, we had here. How many of you remember the previous park uh, out there? Can we just say it was a derision or a reproach? I, I wouldn't, my, Claire was like, Daddy, can I go out and play? I was like, you know, uh-uh, honey, that is tetanus all over it. Like that, there is, do not touch those monkey bars, whatever you do. I, there is, I think Corona came from the previous park. Like I think that's the, there's a lot of versions of speculation, but tell the QAnon people, it started right out here, right? Tell them that's where it, sorry, I'm, I'm going to get in trouble. Uh, but, but here's where, one of the ways I started with the vision about the park was, guys, like, this is an eyesore. This used to be this beautiful place where everybody would come and play, but look at it now. Let's rebuild it. Let's do something about it. Uh, we always start by naming what is and naming what could be. We've been talking a lot in the past three years about racial equity and racial justice in our community. We've been talking a lot that our church still doesn't look like heaven, that our church still doesn't even look like our community. And so we've been talking a lot about what is. Here's the reality of what is around racial justice and racial equity. Here are the problems that we're facing as a church as we step into this and as we become advocates. Here are the challenges that are happening over and over again. But here's what could be. Could you imagine a multi-ethnic church that's gathering here? Could you imagine that the same people that use our park every week are actually worshiping with us on Sunday? Can I get an amen? amen. Can you imagine that, our, that we have this multicultural, multi-ethnic community that's loving and serving and laying down our lives for one another and modeling what, what it actually looks like to be the kingdom of God? We will no longer be a reproach, is what he said. We will no longer be derision. Let's rise up and rebuild. Verse 19, it says, But when Sanballat and the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, these guys are going to be common characters over the next few chapters. 
when they heard of it, they jeered at us. They despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we of his servants will arise and build. But you will have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is what he says to him. He's very, very clear. We're building this and you're not going to reap the benefits of it. No matter what you say, no matter how many times you mock us, no matter how many times you shout at us, we're going to keep building the thing that we're going to build and we're going to step into this. When you go after your kingdom dreams, you will face opposition and you will face obstacles every time. I actually think when we get closer to the red hot center of what God has called us to, the opposition gets stronger. The obstacles become bigger. There are problems that are easy to solve, and there's a reason why they're easy to solve. And there are problems that are hard to solve, and there's a reason why they're hard to solve. And we want to solve big problems here at Grace Marietta. We want to step into big challenges. We want to dream big dreams. We want to believe in God for big things. Okay, I've gone really long, and here I've got a whole other chapter to walk through. So, so here's, we're gonna, here's what I'm going to do. Chapter 3 is this amazing chapter that's all about the division of labor. So if you want to read through chapter 3 on your own this week, there's really this amazing kind of segment. But here's what, it, here's what chapter 3 teaches us. It's that when our envision includes everyone and everyone sacrifices, we can accomplish amazing things. We can do more together than we can do on our own. And so here's this crazy thing that happens. I love in the Bible when assignments are given. It's really funny. So like Jesus is sending out the 72 at one point. And so imagine that the 72 are gathered. Jesus tells them where to go and everybody gets an assignment. And somebody has in front of them, uh, Chorazin is the place that they're sent to. And so they're like, oh, okay, that's where I'm going. And then Jesus stands up and says, woe to you in Chorazin. <laughs> woe to you. Like he sends, he's sending them to the place that he's woeing right now. And you're like, man, I got a crappy assignment here from, from God. We don't always like the assignments that God gives us. Like young people, I love you. But we don't always, like the things that we're called to do are not always fun. And they're not always easy. And I think we're lying to our young people by telling them that everything's going to be easy. And if it's not easy, go do something else and find the easy thing. I think God's people actually do the hard things. I think God's people actually stand up and fight through difficult things. And so sometimes our assignments are not the assignments that we want. And so there's this beautiful thing in, in, in chapter 3 where it's like you get assigned to the fountain gate. That sounds awesome. There's a fountain? I don't know what shape the fountain was in at that time, but there at one time was a fountain. You're going to go to this place, and you're going to go to this place, and you're going to go to the fish gate. I don't know what that means, but that sounds fun. Danny loves fishing, right? You're going to go to the valley gate. You're going to go to all these, all these different places, and then somebody gets assigned the dung gate. <laughs> Verse 14, chapter 3, Malkajah. There should be more written in scripture about Malkajah. Can I get an Amen. Right? Malkajah, the son of Rechab, of the ruler of the district of Beth Hikurim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and he set his doors, its bolts, and its bars. So I, get, I nerd out on stuff in the Bible. So I saw this dung gate thing. I thought it was funny. 
I started figuring out why was it called a dung gate. There's lots of different speculation. Something has to do with sewage and where it went. Something has to do with animals and where they were. Something has to do with just the amount of rubble and ruins that were there. And so I started looking at all this because this guy got a really bad assignment. And as I was researching this, I, I, I started looking at the dung gate now. You know what the dung gate actually is now? It's one of the central entrances to the Temple Mount. It's beautiful. When people start walking into Jerusalem, there's this gate. And it's right in the center of everything. It's right in the middle of everything that's beautiful. And it was once called the Dung Gate. I don't know if there's a better illustration I found in these two chapters of what it looks like to live our kingdom dreams and trust them to God than that. He got a terrible assignment, <laughs> but he did the work. He fought through. He got in the stuff, literally. And all of a sudden, God turned it into something really beautiful. And I think this, I think if we can create a community that's willing to sacrifice for the kingdom, if I, you give me 10 people out there that want to get in the dung gate, and we'll change Cobb County. You give me 10 people who are willing to sacrifice and just dig in and start doing the hard work that nobody approves of, that nobody's signing off on, that nobody's excited about, that nobody's thrilled that's going on, and they just keep faithfully digging. I think what God does with that is he makes it more beautiful than all the other things. And so for you, What's the kingdom dream that you know God's called you to? What are the obstacles and the challenges that you're facing? What are the ways that you need to move from intentions to practices? And what does it look like for you to pick up the shovel and to walk into the dung gate and start digging? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to love you and to serve you. I pray that you would teach us to follow the vision that you've placed on each of our hearts and to faithfully... Just walk into the places that you've called us to and serve where you've asked us to. I pray that you'll give us courage and strength and power. Lord, we just honestly name that there's opposition that we face as a church right now. And I know there's opposition that's faced in these individual kingdom dreams that are coming out. And so I just pray, Lord, that you'd give us wisdom, the wisdom of Nehemiah. I pray that you'd give us favor, the favor of Nehemiah. I pray that you'd give us courage you give us strength, like Malkajah. I pray that you teach us to lay down our pride and pick up the shovel. And we pray that whatever we build, Lord, that you will bless. We pray that ever, whatever we put our hands to, that you will be the one who empowers the task. We thank you, Lord. In your name we pray.